continue on my sharings anyway in the letter to the Ephesians. And we'll be reading uh, verse 19 through the end of chapter 1, which is verse 23. <clears throat> we talked the context of this portion of the letter is Paul's prayer for the church, having already in the beginnings of chapter 1 established the greatness of a salvation that God has bestowed in Christ, the greatness of being in him, and that we're going to focus on that a little bit as far as the significance of that phrase and what it means to be his body, to be the church. How significant that is that Paul would say that he has given him to be the head of his church, which is his body. There's a great significance to that, uh, that I think we miss so often. Because we are so focused on ourselves. You know, it's amazing. The salvation that, that took God to initiate it. Once we are found in him and born again, as we say, all the focus goes on us. When you recognize, if you go into chapter 2 and you see, you hath he quickened who were dead in sin, that kind of takes us out of the picture as far as any ability or strength or any decisive action we had that says, hey, I think I'll pick Jesus and make him my Lord and Savior. That's not how this works. I'm doing a study right now on the dead bones in Ezekiel. That's how he found us. Dead, dry. And the question is, can they live again? And, and the man who had enough sense to say, well, this is not up to me. I have no, there's not even an ounce of understanding to look at this and say it can live again. There's some hope here. That's how he found us. And thank God. The problem is we focus so much on us after that transaction has happened. And that's a, not a, not, it's a once and for all transaction, but it has eternal significance and ramifications. And that is why Paul would say, this is what I want you to see. This is who I want you to know. This is the one that I want God to open the eyes of your soul to behold because otherwise... We miss it. We have it. We have it all because he's there. He's present. He's in the soul. And that's what Paul has taken the whole first of this chapter to say. He's in you. You're in him. And because of this, you have all spiritual blessings. However, unless your soul is open to see, you will be fooled and deceived by so many different things. You'll be diverted. Your attention will go in a million different directions because this person says, no, this is what we need. And this is what we need. And this is how we need to add to our salvation. We need works. We need circumcision. We need holy days. We need touch not, taste not, handle not. And Paul is saying, all you need is Jesus. All you need is is the one that God has already fully supplied. What you need, however, after that full supply has been bestowed to you, your eyes need to be opened so that your soul can perceive a reality greater than yourself. So that you no longer bring salvation down to your level, but your soul is brought up to his level. And you see a reality as it truly is Defined by God and not by men. That is why Paul basically uses the language he's using here in so many ways to try to tell us how awesome what we have received is and how great our salvation is in, in, in so many ways that a lot of the commentaries would say he, he went into the, and, and even the Greek word means it, but he went into hyperbole. 
He was using hyperbolic language to try to exhaust the human language to tell you how great it was. Well, I'm telling you, it wasn't hyperbolic in that it was untrue and exaggerated. It was just him trying in the limited way we can to express something that is utterly beyond us. That is so outside of the scope of human reasoning that it demands the God's own power to not only provide it as he has done, but to cause you to see and know and grow in what he has provided. This is all a work of God. Of God and not of us. And see, this is a place of rest for us. This is a place where we begin in a state of rest. Our pursuit of God, to know God, is in a place of rest. There is no chaos. We're not on crunch time, right? We're not running out of time. We're in eternity. The journey of the soul is not one that has a time clock attached to it. The journey of the soul is one that is absolutely dependent upon the power and work of God. He brought you, he keeps you, and he makes you to know where you are. That's his doing. And it is marvelous in our sight, right? That's what the scriptures say. Well, it's only marvelous in our sight when it is our sight. When it is the view of the soul, we see how marvelous and how exceedingly great it is. And that's the prayer of Paul. He doesn't just want you to agree with the facts that you are born of God and have received all things. That's wonderful and it is absolutely true. He wants your soul to gaze upon the one who makes it so. So that your soul never diverts again. Your mind never gets involved and says, it can't be this, it can't be this easy. <laughs> and see, that's a word we don't like to throw out there. Easy. Oh, no, it's not that easy. It's hard. No, Christian life is not very hard. Not I. But Christ lives. That's pretty easy. That's pretty simple. I always think about the easy button. You know, who is it? Office. Office Depot or somebody has Staples, whoever. Yeah, man, when you came to Christ, you hit the easy button. That is bingo. You got it. The reason we have such struggles is because I'm trying to perceive an above reality looking beneath. I'm trying to perceive something that is of him by looking at me, and that's never going to work. You don't see the progress of spiritual life looking at you. And see, that's for us the ultimate. When I can see in me the reality of salvation, then I know I've arrived. No, you arrived whether you see it or not. But God wants you to see where you are, what you've received. He wants, him, he wants you to see the gift that he's given you. And this is a, a word that he uses in these verses. Let's read them before I go without reading Verse 19 of Ephesians 1, that you may know, is the premise of this, that you may know what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe. And we focused on that a little bit the last time. Man, what a, what a wonderful statement that can be made. This is his power to usward who believe. You see that? It didn't have to be that way. God didn't have to give it to us. We didn't have to. I mean, he could have been satisfied with just his work. But the mercy of God and the grace of God extended toward us that we may receive and benefit from and partake of that which fully satisfies his predetermined and predestined will. We're going to see a little bit of that in some verses today. What have we because we are his body? What is our uh, possession because he is the head of this body? What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of him? So many still wait for that. They're still thinking it's something yet to be. It's another step beyond. No, it's not. 
of his fullness have all we received and grace for grace. These are not statements that qualify anything. These are statements of truth and fact. There's a saying out there now, you know, f facts don't care about your feelings. Well, neither does truth. Truth doesn't care about your feelings, nor does it care about your theology. I found that to be true. God in no way asked me my opinion. Or plays with my theology and say, okay, you know, that's fine. No. He shows me a reality. And in that reality, my concepts are answered. My concepts are challenged and erased. And I see reality as it has always been in the sight of God because that's what we've received. That's why the view of the heart must be the view God beholds. It must be God's view that comes and is emblazoned into the soul, imprinted there. So that I can stand upon the firm ground of seeing something that is unseen by natural eyes. That's where I stand firm on something that I can't see here. But something that I am seeing here. That I'll rest in the fact that when I say it is not I but Christ, I'm not passing the book. And saying, oh, he's just you know, settling for being a heathen. No, I'm settling for the truth as it is in Christ. I'm not making excuses for myself. I'm telling you, you can change your actions and attitudes just by getting counseling. That's not how this works. This is not a step better than counseling. This is bringing a soul from death to life. This is totally different. As I said before, this is not making, bringing Raven from good to bad. I mean, bad to good or, you know. Uh, mean to kind. Hopefully that happens. Hopefully I'm more kind than I have been. Don't say anything. I see, I see this right here. But if that's the standard, and see, that's the problem. That's most people's standard. And it's not the standard. As I said, when you get to the height of the good that men look at and say, that's the height of it, you haven't even scratched the surface of what God, what God calls good. There is none good but God. Again, try to measure to that and see what good is. Let alone righteous and holy. We think that we can attach those things to the externals of man and to the vessel and to the doings of it and the not doings of it. And we can attach that. And say, oh, he's righteous. No. He's, if he's righteous at all, it's because the righteousness of God abides in him. There's the picture. That's the significance of him being head of his body. Him being the one who fills the body with his fullness. That's the significance of it. Because the body has no significance in and of itself. Its only significance is that it is his. The only significance a believer has in the sight of God is that that believer is filled with his son. That's it. And while men want to tell you how great you are, I want to tell you how great Christ is. Because that's the gospel. The gospel declares his greatness, not yours. Salvation is not about him making you great. It's about him filling you with the greatness of another. The fullness and life and perfection of another. It's not to make you perfect. See how we bring down. And it, for us, it just seems like a little tweak. Oh, it's not about my perfection. It's about his perfection. But that's, a, that's two creations different. <laughs> There's a gap there that never is filled. And the cross is the only thing that transitions the soul from the one to the other. Not I, but Christ. Dead unto sin and alive unto God. 
We even bring the cross over here and we still make it about us. And we say, oh, we got to die. We got to die to self. We got to die to this. We got to die to that. No. Paul says, you are dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, from that perspective, from that standpoint, what's the soul's pursuit? Set your affection above. Not try to release yourself from the problems of the earth. Stop trying to do that. Don't do that. Don't touch that. That's where we go. That's what Paul warns against. Paul warns them about the whole concept of Christianity that we've adopted and says, don't do that, don't say that, don't touch that. Paul says the reality is you're dead to this. You're alive unto God because you're found in him. You are risen with him. That's the power of what we're talking about here, the having rigid. That's the power exerted of God to bring your soul from a state of death to life, from below to above, where you are now found in him and have nothing of your own again. That's the significance of throughout the first part of this chapter, he continually uh, reiterates the phrase, in Christ, in him, in the beloved, in whom. Over and over again, and most commentaries would say, this is, they, they coined this the, the, the letter of N. Because that's what he talks about the whole time. Everything you have is because it's in him. You have nothing unless it's in him. Why do you have spiritual blessings? It's in him, in the beloved you are accepted. Nowhere else, that's significant. That's significant. We lose sight of it. Because we get caught up on the vessel. We get caught up on me. And Paul is just trying in the words to explain to them the greatness of their head. The greatness of the one in whom they live and move and have their being. The greatness of the one who has made salvation full, complete, perfect. How can it be stated of you, holy and without blame, before him in love. Well, the in love part tells you. You are found in the love of God. The love of God has been made manifest toward you. That he is your life. And you have no life, no righteousness, no standing at all before the Father except him. That's the whole picture of the Holy of Holies. You don't have another man allowed to stand there. That's a picture of heaven itself, the scripture says, right? And we're all wanting to crowd heaven and make it full. I saw a picture, I saw a sign the other day, make heaven full. Well, it is. Heaven is full. Heaven is completely full of his fullness. You look at heaven itself in the picture of the Holy of Holies. He alone abides there. There's the full resident of heaven. Go to Revelation. You see the one on the throne that says heaven and earth disappeared in his sight. When they see the one. That's the whole culmination of it all. In fact, the beginning of chapter, and there's a, there's a better translation of this. Let me, um, I think it's the complete Jewish Bible that would say it. Yeah, complete Jewish Bible. Imagine that. And they've got it right. This is Ephesians 6, uh, chapter 1, verses 6 through 10 says, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved, in union with him through the shedding of his blood, we are set free. Our sins are forgiven. This accords with the wealth of the grace that he has lavished on us in all of his wisdom and insight. He has made known to us his secret plan or his mystery, which by his own will he designed beforehand in connection with the Messiah. Nothing he did or willed or purposed was outside of the scope of Christ. 
Why? Because nothing he does or has done is outside of the scope of Christ. Again, that's why it's significant that we are in him, that we are his body. And put into effect the time ripe, his plan to place everything in heaven and on earth under the headship of the Messiah. That's his plan. That's, that was God's preordination. That's what he had in mind from before the foundation of the world. And guess what? That's what he has done. He has brought all things under the headship of one man. He, that one that he looks at and says, this is the one in whom I am well pleased. Why? Because this is the one that satisfies my eternal purpose. This is the one that totally and fully, without any missing element at all, is the amen to everything I have ever desired. And then we try to be that too. We try in some way to please God. We try in some way to meet his, meet his standard. Forget it. The only standard is the standard that is the measure of the fullness of Christ. And that is only met in this perfect man. And if you are in him, you are part of the body of a perfect man. You are in a perfect man. You are never destined to be perfect men. You are destined and have always been destined to be the habitation of a perfect man. To be filled with the fullness of him. That is what God has wrought in raising him up from the dead, as he says here, which he wrought in Christ. This mighty power he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Far above every principality, power, might, dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. And he's put all things under his feet, gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all. You think a point's trying to be made here? He's trying to tell you how great he is. And now the body is, has been gifted such a wonderful, complete life. He gave him to be the head. Over the church. You see those, that phrase? Gave him to be. That's a gift. They didn't qualify for it or anything. He gave him to be the head. How much mercy could there possibly be? Again, look at the dead bones and see how much mercy is necessary. Look at the field where man would say, I have no idea if there's hope here. Only you know God. Guess what? There wasn't any. Not at all. Until the resurrection. Until this exercising of God's ultimate power in raising a man out from among the dead so that he could live as the resurrection and call out with the voice of a trumpet to the dead and say, come unto me and live. That's the mercy that has been extended to us who believe. That we may be his place of dwelling. That we would be filled with the fullness of another. <laughs> filled with a life that pleases God. Instead of look at these things and say, oh, I have to implement this practice. I have to try to add this to my regimen. And we go to the scriptures to find these things. We try to find the instructions and the way to apply properly the word of God. No, God properly applied everything to your soul when he applied his son to it. You don't have to apply anything. What we do is try to substitute ourselves for the one of whom this actually testifies. And we don't even understand that. How do I do that? 
Jesus would say, uh, seed falls into the ground and die. And we say, we got to die too. No, there's only one seed that could die that death. And one seed that could fall into the ground and bring forth that fruit that pleased God. Only one. That's just as bad as making money the seed that the scripture talks about. How is the one okay and the other not? No, they're both wrong. There's only one seed of God here. There's only one that could do that. That scripture has no significance beyond him. Just like every other one. <laughs> and the moment I put me in there and isogeet the whole thing narcissistically, it all becomes me. And it all becomes my, the weight on my shoulder to do it, to live it, to be it. And now I got to be like Jesus except being, instead of being the body of him. That's a different thing. Because this body doesn't have to exert any energy to manifest who I am. It's an automatic. Why? Because I'm in it. This is my body. My knee doesn't have to wake up every day and say, what am I supposed to do now? It pretty well knows. Once the head's functioning in it, good. It might take my body a while in the mornings, you know, after a couple cups of coffee. But his body doesn't need such stimulation. <laughs> you know what we call stimulation? Revival. Let's have a revival. Let's stimulate this thing. <laughs> it's like giving Jesus caffeine. Let's make it really good. No. Of his fullness. This is something complete. We don't need to add. We can't add anything to this. The only thing we can add is a soul that is in full posture for the Spirit of God to move upon it and cause it to behold a life that we have received so that we can rest in the rest that we have been brought into. You hear the words? That we will rest in the rest that we've been brought to. Stop trying to walk outside of it. Fall from grace as... Paul will say, you are his body that is filled with his fullness. And there's a, you know, uh, I was reading one of the commentaries. This is Jameson Fawcett and Brown. And he was, you know, on the, he was on the road to getting it right. And he said, the raising of Christ is not only the earnest of our bodies. And then there you go. So Jesus raising from the dead. He makes, he makes some passing, gives some passing glance to the fact that, you know, by union with him, the living one, we now have a soul that is saved. But the real significance to him was that this is the down payment that says one day our bodies will live again too. Why? Because we make the secondary issue out of the reality. Most commentaries, when you read a phrase like Christ in you, Christ made unto you, what they'll do is use this really cool word called metaphorically. And they'll say that's true metaphorically, but one day it's going to be true in reality, actually true. No, 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 no. Again, we have made the primary thing a secondary issue. The primary thing is reality of being his body. His fullness have we received. We talked about 1 Corinthians 15 last time. That's the picture of salvation. That's the picture of a soul being brought from the man of the earth to the man who is the Lord from heaven, the life-giving spirit. The moment you are born of God, your soul comes from corruptible to incorruptible. From mortal to immortal. That just means death to life. Again, we take him order and we think of the natural body, always. He's talking about a divine transaction of a soul that he created for a purpose. If your body's part of that purpose or the main part of that purpose, then what happens when it's not here anymore? 
And all your hopes have hung upon that dirt. Well, he's going to glorify dirt one day. Is that really the significance? Even if he does, let's put that aside and say, even if that happens, is that what God's after? I heard somebody one time says, we are to be the visible manifestation of an invisible God. And I said, good luck. But here's the point, if that's your hope, if that's the real ultimate thing God's always been after, let me ask you a question. When that body's done, what's your purpose now? Does it carry on or is it over with? See, there's the, there's the things we don't consider when we make ourselves the picture, when we make ourselves the object of it all, when we make this significant instead of him significant. The fullness of Christ defines this. And when he says that he is given a name above every name, not only in this world, but in the world to come. Again, we do this world and then one that's coming. In fact, that's from the Jewish saying that when they said uh, this age, they meant the period that was before the coming of the Messiah. The age to come was the one when the Messiah comes. So he's not saying now and one day in the future. He's, he's showing them the whole idea of what they were waiting on as Jews has come to its culmination. This is the one God exalted, lifted up out of the dead and gave him a name that reaches far into all ages and says he's the one you were hoping for. The hope of the nations has come. Colossians 1 speaks of this. He is the head of his body, the church, verse 18, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things on earth or things in heaven, sounds a whole lot like what we read in Ephesians 1, right? And you that were sometimes alienated, enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. He'll go on in chapter 2 and make those same statements regarding the Jew and the Gentile to present you holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Now, is that a process? Is that something that gets you on the treadmill so he can work you out to where finally you are this? How is that the truth with regard to us that looks at ourselves in the mirror every day and can say without any doubt, that's not true? Because I'll tell you right now, God may, it may be in his sight that I'm holy and unblameable, but it certainly isn't in mine. Tell me who can't say that. Then tell me how of God and not of us this has to be. Tell me how there has to be a reality greater than us that keeps us, holds us, anchors us in a reality that we cannot define in any way, shape, or form. I don't care how good you get, how perfect you act. Because I promise you, his perfection is greater. And that's the perfection we have received that is of him and not of us. That is full and complete because he's the fullness that makes it complete. And the whole work of God is so my soul and your soul can see him. From that point on can behold him and see defined in his being and in his presence everything God looks at and delights in. You know why? So you can delight in it too. And be satisfied. Just as God is satisfied. 
And stop trying to get God to add to something that's already complete. And try to get him to tweak parts and pieces that to you doesn't seem to be working. The problem is it's not, it's not that it's not working, is you haven't seen the fullness of the work that he has done. You haven't seen Jesus. The point is you need to see Christ. That's Paul's point here. You need to see the head. That's the same thing as Colossians says. Guys, all of this touch not, taste not, handle not, it comes from people that aren't holding to the head. They're not holding to the head from whom the whole body is fully supplied. Paul is saying you need to see the head so that you can just hold to him and relax and rest in the assurance that he has fully supplied you. Even when the thing you don't see, evident in the natural, you don't think it's there, guess what? It is. He's there. And if he's there, I promise you, everything's there. Because God never gave his son in pieces and parts. He testified of him in pieces and parts. But when he gives him to the soul, it's of his fullness have we received. You are complete in him. Do we see that completeness all at once? No. But guess what? Any part of him you see, you see the completeness of it all. So as Paul would say, what we have seen, let's rest in that and if we are otherwise minded in anything even God will reveal this unto you see I'm so worried about that other part that I hadn't seen yet because I think I'm missing something if I haven't seen it no he's just saying you have it all and you'll see what he shows you and rest there until he shows you him again until he continues in the sea, in the revealing of his son to show you the fullness that is present. But don't freak out because you haven't seen him all. All of him because you'll never see all of him. You'll never see him in his fullness. That's an eternal journey of a soul. That'll never be exhausted. We're talking about the length, breadth, and the depth of him? Come on. God is pleased to show you the Son because He's been pleased to give you the Son. See, I want us to understand that. I want, I want us to rest in the assurance of a work that is complete. But understand in the face of what is complete, we are called to come and see this man. We stand on firm ground as we pursue the knowing of him. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. That's pretty, that's pretty secure, I'd say. And it's from that standpoint that we look for him, for the appearing of our life. And in the appearing of our life, what we see, we see where we have always been. We see where we've been from the beginning. When we received his fullness, we receive the glory and we see that we are found in that glory. We stand complete in him. We just see what has always been. We see reality as has always been defined in the face of Jesus Christ. That's an assurance. So, before we stop this, let me read a few things here. Who is the head of this body? And why does that title or that position of his, why is it so considerable? Why is it of such weight Hebrews 1, 2 through 4. God who spoke in many times, many ways to the fathers by the prophets says in verse 2, hath in these last days spoken 
unto us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Sounds a lot like Ephesians 1. Exalted him, raised him, made, gave him a name above every name, right? Being made so much better than the angels, he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Verse 8, but the Son, he says, but to the Son, or of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of unrighteousness is the scepter, uprightness, sorry, uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. God has exalted this one. Again, we hear those things. means nothing most of the time. I'm telling you who your head is. He's the one God has exalted. He's the one God raised up. He's the one he gave a name above every name. He's the one that sits on the throne. He's the one that's completed it all. So we go into a picture like Solomon building a house. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read these words. And there's a lot here to read. I won't read it all, but we're going to go through a lot of this. First uh, Kings chapter eight verse five, and, the, and King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who had assembled before him were with him before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and oxen that they could not be counted or numbered. And the priest brought the ark of the covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house in the midst of the holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Poles were so long, the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside. And they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except two tablets of stone that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then Solomon said, the Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have indeed built you an exalted house, a place for you to dwell in forever. The king turned around and blessed all the assembly of Israel while all the assembly of Israel stood. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hand, listen to these words. This is the significance of this house being built. This is also the significance of the house that we are. The body of Christ. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand hath fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to David my father, saying, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel in which to build a house that my name might be there. But I chose David to be over my people. It was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said, Whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the house, but your son, who shall be born to you, shall build the house for my name. Now the Lord has fulfilled his promise that he made. Listen to these words. For I have risen in the place of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord has promised. And I have built the house for the name of the Lord the God of Israel. You see that? I have risen in his place to sit on this throne. My raising up to sit on this throne to build this house is the fulfillment of what God had promised. 
That's the picture that Paul is painting here. That's part of it. What he's showing them, what God has preordained, guys, he has fulfilled in the exercising of this ultimate power in the raising up of him from the dead and bringing him to giving him as the head of his body, the church, a church that exists because it is filled with his fullness. The glory that filled this house is a shadow of this that we have received. You know, we're always taught, we read these in Pentecost, I would always hear these things, you know, the glory filled the house and people couldn't stand up in the house and couldn't enter into it to minister and they would get excited about that and say, wouldn't it be wonderful if this house got filled with the same glory? <laughs> That's what you want. No, no, that was a picture of something much more significant. A house filled with the glory of God. Isn't that what Paul says? Christ in you. The glory of God that was hoped for. Why? Because you are his house. You are his place of dwelling. You are his body. You're the temple that he said, destroy this one. I'll build another one in three days. I'll raise it up. How did that happen? Ephesians 1, in the raising up of Jesus up from the dead. What did Solomon say? I have risen in the place of my father to sit on this throne. And that is the fulfillment of God's promise. That I sit in the house built by his own doing. And here's the thing. That house couldn't be built by a man of war. That house couldn't be built by one who spilt blood and killed the enemies. That house had to be built by a son of peace who had no enemies because the enemies were already conquered. He raised up as a son of peace. He raised up as the Jedediah, the beloved of God, who was a man of total peace, filled with the wisdom of God. The greater than Solomon now lives in us, now sits upon the throne of his house, his temple, his body, and fills that house with his fullness. That is great, significant salvation. That is reality defined perfectly in the one who abides in our soul. And as Paul does in these letters, and I do, hopefully in everything I say, I call the church to come and see him. Come and know. Behold the salvation of the Lord. Don't try to do it. Just see the one who is the salvation that God has wrought. The fullness that fills your soul embodied in a perfect life. See, every, all the change, all the stuff that we're always after on the superficial level, that's, there's nothing wrong with any of that. But when that's the pursuit, we've gotten the cart in, way in front of the horse. We've detached the horse, and we're pushing the car. Might as well burn the car and give your back a little rest. No, this is a done deal, finished, complete, and you have received that completeness. And the Spirit of God is just saying, just come and see. Come and see. Again, as we talked about spiritual growth, spiritual growth is not getting you to a level where you're great just like Jesus is or perfect just like him. Spiritual growth is you come to see how great he is in the midst of your nothingness so that you can't boast in anything other than his greatness. Well, that is the one who abides in us, the one exalted. Glorified. In fact, Arthur S. Way, and I'll stop here, but Arthur S. Way's translation says this, The Supreme One has He given 
to be the head to his church, which indeed is the Messiah's body, which is filled with the presence of him who fills with all that is therein. Now, I love that because if you read that phrase, he feels with all that is therein. What does that mean? It means there's nothing therein unless he feels it. And the only thing it has in it is that which he is in it. That's really good news. That's good news. That means found in him having nothing of my own. And you know what I can do? Instead of complain about that and say, God, when are you going to make me better? I can rest and say, thank you, Jesus, that this is you and not me. All I ask is not to be on the same level as you. I just want to see you. I want to know you. I want to behold the salvation that you are, the covenant that you are, the relationship with God that you are in me. So, Father, we thank you for this salvation. And we ask you to make our soul more and more aware of the greatness of it, of the significance of who Christ is in us. Open our eyes, let us behold the one in whom your delight is eternally found. Let us see your son. Let us behold our salvation and rest in the assurance of a work that you have wrought that keeps us because we can't keep ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.